0: Turn with me to Acts chapter 3. Jerusalem, which is where we're at now in the story, Jerusalem has become the hot spot for activity in regards to what the Spirit is doing, to uh, the events of the early church. Lots was going on here. The people in Jerusalem, specifically the Jews, the Christians there, had witnessed those flames of fire. Above the head of believers, they witnessed people speaking in languages that they knew they shouldn't be speaking and they didn't have the knowledge of. And now in chapter three, we saw the the first healing. So a man who is forty years old, been brought to the gate of the temple grounds every day, was miraculously healed by the power of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. Uh, been brought to a gate. You guys remember the name of the gate? You can look back and see. It's, it's beautiful. Uh, Caleb pointed out something to me uh, last week. In his study, he looked up the Greek meaning behind that word beautiful. It's interesting. Last week, I mentioned about how God's timing is right and perfect and how history was primed for the events that took place and how it was likely that Jesus and Peter and John had walked by this man multiple times. Why hadn't he been healed before? And Caleb pointed out, and you if you've got a, a way to look up the Greek, you can do this too. But there, that word for beautiful in Acts 3 refers to the flourishing of something in the right time. In the right season. Now, I didn't do my my word study there on that. But Caleb did, and it works beautifully to help us understand that this was the hour that God's glory would be seen as a result of this man's healing. And it's beautiful. Aren't the details in the word of God, just exciting and amazing. So because of his sensitivity to the Holy spirit, Peter, who had seen this guy before, likely he became a conduit of the power of God to this man. The man is miraculously healed, he's made whole, and immediately he jumps up and he praises God, not Peter. He was looking for a handout, but he became a whole new person. He was hoping for just silver and gold from these guys, but he received an unfading inheritance. In Christ, God gives us so much more than we expect or deserve, and that's to be sure. Now, this was a cause of great joy in, for sure, the healed man... As we talked last week about the progression that we see, about how he stood and then he began to walk and then he was leaping and praising the Lord. It was a source of great joy for him, but it was also, it also had an effect on the people. Now to some people, there was joy there. It says at the end of what we looked at last week in verse 10 that they were all filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened. And so it opens the door at just the right time for the gospel to be preached. And so we want to look at the rest of the chapter, verse 11 through 26. We'll read that together and then let's pray and ask God's blessing on our time in the word. Chapter 3, verse 11. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our power or piety, we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant, Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him, but you denied the holy and righteous one. And ask for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this, the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers, Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets, and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Let's let's pray. Lord uh, Here's another sermon that's preached. And we need to hear sermons like this. Lord, I pray that you would allow uh, your spirit to to work in this place uh, for another sermon to be preached that glorifies the name of Christ. I pray that that's what is moving our hearts this day and tomorrow and the day after, that's to glorify the risen Savior. May everything that happens here certainly but when we leave from here and we go to our homes and tomorrow when many of us go into offices or the workplace may that still be our desire may the joy of our salvation spill over into those around us lord do your work through your word today in jesus name amen so you can see in the first few verses that we read together that the the man who had been healed, he was sticking close to Peter and John. So he was, I think the text says he clung, he clung to him and the people around, they were just continuing in astonishment. They couldn't believe what they had seen. And so they see Peter and John and the man and they're over at a certain part inside the temple grounds and they, they all go over there to be close to what's going on. Like I said, it's a hotbed for activity and the spirit was moving. Things were happening. And they catch up to Peter and John and, and the man at a place called Solomon's Portico. Or, this is kind of like a, imagine a colonnade. It's, it's, a, it's like a, a, a large hallway, outdoor hallway with pillars, uh, probably covered, and it's called Solomon's Porch. Uh, this is a place, it's not inside the temple, but it's inside the temple grounds, if you will. And it's just an outdoor place that people would sometimes assemble. And so they, they catch up to him there. Verse 12 says, Peter recognizes what's going on. There's a crowd gathering. Because of the sign of this man's healing, there's a crowd gathering. And he's sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit, and so he takes the opportunity here to do the same thing he did right after Pentecost. Right? The sign of speaking in tongues is there. The flames of fire over their heads. And Peter uses that time in chapter 2 to explain what's going on and to preach the gospel. He does the same thing in chapter 3. But remember in chapter 2, what did some people assume was happening? People are speaking in tongues, the Spirit's moving, and some people looked at it and said, these Christians are drunk. And they tried to explain what was going on with human reasoning. And so, uh, here in Acts 3, no one's accusing anyone of that, but Peter starts his sermon by explaining the sign of healing, just like he started the one after Pentecost, explaining what was going on. He said, guys, it's, it's like 9 a.m. in the morning, these people are not drunk something deeper, something below the surface going on. He does the same thing here. He looks at them, and in in verse 12, he says, Men of Israel, guys, why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we've made him walk? So the, the lame man praised God when he was healed, and he was right to do it. Peter makes that point again here for everyone. To hear it, to understand it, and he's saying, it's not by our power, it's not by our piety or our our holiness, our purity that this man was healed, but he says it's through the name of Jesus, the holy and righteous one. That's, that's the reason. Don't look at us, look at Jesus. Now in that, in that time, in Jewish culture, and, and maybe even more still today, a name didn't just Differentiate one person from another. Okay, there was something a little bit more to a name. They believed a person's name expressed their nature. The nature of who they were. They be, the, the power of a person was present and available in the name of that person. So think about in that day, Roman soldiers acted under the name of Caesar. And they would carry out their duties under that authority, and they would use that name. And if you defied them, you were, as in a sense, defying Caesar, the one who had power and authority over them. Look, at, look back at verse 6. This is why Peter said, In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. It was in the name of someone who had authority greater than him, who he was calling on and walking in. I think Peter does this intentionally, consciously in the authority and the power of Jesus. He's making a point to say it's not in my power, not in my purity, not in my authority, but in Jesus. Skip forward to verse 16. Peter won't even take credit for it. He won't take credit for what's going on. The faith that was even exercised in the healing, he says, is not of me. He says, the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Now the word through, that's how the ESV translates it. In the King James Version, it's the word by. And basically, that word just denotes the channel of an act. That's the definition in the Greek. It's talking about the channel of an act. So the faith by which this man was healed was given by Jesus as the channel. Therefore... Both the faith and the healing came from Jesus, not Peter. And Peter recognizes this. He admits to this. And, I, and my question is, why wouldn't he? Why wouldn't he give Jesus the credit here? Why wouldn't he want Peter to praise him? See, Peter's not glory hunting here. I hope you understand what I mean with that term. He's not putting on a show in order to get a following. He's not propping himself up as something that he isn't. Effectively, what Peter is doing here is he's saying, don't look at me, look at Jesus. It's all about him. sermon he preaches makes this abundantly clear. Just glance down. These are all noted in your notes. Verse 13, 14, 15, 16, 18, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, and 26 all specifically reference Jesus Christ. Not him, but Jesus. He says "He says that Jesus is God's true servant. He's the holy and righteous one. He's the author of life. He is the one who healed this man. He's the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophets. He's the last prophet. He's the source of blessing, and he was sent first to the Jews in order to turn them from their wickedness. So God used Peter as a conduit of blessing to this man and to many more. But even Peter pleaded with them, don't focus on me, focus on Jesus. The lame man understood this and did it. He focused on Jesus. I read a story this week about Leonardo da Vinci, famous sculptor and artist. He painted what you guys have probably seen as that, that painting of the Lord's, of the Last Supper. It said, and this is conjecture, but I read in several sources. It said that when he was finishing and had just finished this portrait, that he invited a friend to come in and look it over and tell him what he thought of it. So this friend comes in and wanting to be encouraging to Leonardo da Vinci, he says, "Wow, this is great! I love the 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 chalice that's by Jesus on the table. It's it's beautiful. It shines as almost it's real. The gems in it, uh, it's it's actually worthy." ...to be used by somebody like Jesus. Very encouraging to Leonardo da Vinci. Well, they talk a little bit more about the painting... ...and it says that Leonardo da Vinci went over with a brush... ...and blotted out the cup entirely. Painted right over it, removing it from the picture. And reported, it said that he said... ...nothing must distract from the figure of Christ whatever detracts or diverts attention from Jesus must be blotted out. Now, this story could have been made up over the years, but it's interesting. If you look at a picture, and you go home, wait till after church at least, and you Google this picture, there's not a cup on the table by Jesus. He's blotting out anything that would distract from Jesus, and that's what Peter is doing here. When Peter and John saw the first hints that people were running to them as these powerful men of God, that they were the source somehow of this power to perform miracles like this, Peter immediately shines the light back on Jesus and eliminates anything that would detract from him. Jesus was the clear and consistent point of what the apostles said and did throughout the New Testament. Paul even says that the things that he worked hard at were not about him. In First Corinthians chapter 15, verses 9 and 10, he says this, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God, he says. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. So can God still do incredible things like what we see in the book of Acts, like what we see with this man? I have to believe that he can, according to his ways and for his purposes. But I don't think that any of us should expect to see anything like this if our desire is for the glory, if we're making it about us. Peter was quick. He was concise about who deserved the praise. And if anything incredible is going to happen around us or through us, we have to be clear about that too. Now, later in the book of Acts in chapter 14, Paul actually does the same thing for a man who was born lame. He instructs him. He says, stand up and walk. And the man does. And there in the story, and we'll get there eventually, but the people around respond In a way that Paul did not like. They say the gods, literally, they say the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And they start calling Paul and Barnabas Zeus and different Roman gods. Thinking that this was where the power came from. How do you think Paul and Barnabas responded in Acts 14? Do you think that they kind of stood up a little straighter and put their shoulders back and kind of enjoyed the praise? They don't, as you can imagine. They actually, they they tear their clothes and they run. Literally, you can read it. They tear their clothes and they run. And this is what they answer. They say, men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you. We bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is within them. I think this helps us understand that true workers of God are not glory seekers. They are glory reflectors. This is nothing new. You understand this. But people that are actually doing the will of God do not seek the glory for themselves. They reflect the glory back to who it's really due. And that's what Paul and Barnabas do in Acts 14. That's what Peter and John do here. They reject the praise. Guys, Don't think that it's from our power or purity that this man was healed. Look to Christ. Look to Him. Christians are supposed to work hard as unto the Lord, knowing that God sees the desire of their hearts. But we also know that any good that comes of our work comes from Him. And so all glory goes to Him. Now there's something significant going on here too that I want to point out, because I think this is very interesting. This isn't the first time that Solomon's portico is mentioned in the New Testament. It's mentioned before in John chapter 10. Jesus teaches in the same location, but with a very different result than what happens here in Acts chapter 3. You can flip over there if you want to kind of glance through what happens, but in John chapter 10... The Jews, perhaps some of the same Jews that are listening to Peter in Solomon's portico in Acts 3, the Jews are gathered around Jesus in John 10, and they just ask him, Jesus, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, just tell us. Just say it. Please, tell us plainly, they say. Jesus' response includes this statement in verse 30, and he says, I and the Father are one. Now that's pretty clear. There it was. The issue that they just wouldn't accept about him. Because verse 31, if you're there, you can glance to. it says that the Jews picked up stones to stone him. He says, I and the Father are one. He answered their question. They didn't like it, and so they grabbed stones to kill him. Jesus says, I have shown you many good works from the father for which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him. It's not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy because you being a man, make yourself God. Jesus has already told them and shown them that this was the case. He says, look at all the things that I did in your presence. Is it not clear? John chapter twenty twenty five 25 through 30. Jesus answers them. I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you're not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them. And they follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who's given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. Boy, they really didn't like that. Jesus was preaching again. He was saying these things in Solomon's portico not long before. And here, now, in Acts chapter 3, again, not long after that, Peter, in exactly the same place, is saying pretty much the exact exactly the same thing. Look at what he says in verse 14. He says that Jesus is the holy and righteous one. He is of God. Verse 15, that he is the incarnate author of life creation account bears witness to this Paul's writings bear witness to this he is before and above all things verse 18 Peter then says that he is the fulfillment of all Old Testament prophecies what Peter is saying to the Jews who were there that day in Solomon's portico he's saying that redemptive history concluded with Jesus the final word it ends there. Their highly respected leader, Moses, predicted that the Lord would send another prophet, a greater prophet, and that those who do not listen to him, look at verse 23 and 20, or 22 and 23, those who do not listen to this prophet will be destroyed. Then Peter makes clear that this prophet is God's servant, Jesus. Look at verse 13. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers. He's not leaving anybody out. It didn't matter which tribe of Israel you come from. This God glorified his servant, Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate, whom he had decided to release, when he decided to release him. When Jesus spoke these kinds of things earlier, the Jewish audience picked up stones to kill him. But as I said last week, history was primed for what's going on here in Acts 3 like never before. When Peter spoke these same truths in Acts chapter 3, something very different happened. They didn't pick up stones to stone him. Now there were some who still responded similarly like they did to Jesus in Acts 20. They opposed the truth. But Acts 4.4 4 says, Many of those who heard the word believed. Very different response than what Jesus experienced. Now think about it. I mentioned this before. Some of these who are hearing what Peter is saying had already heard Jesus himself say it in the same spot before. What changed? Certainly... Seeing Jesus resurrected from the dead would have had an effect, right? I think certainly seeing this well-known lame man, 40 plus years, they knew him. Now walking and leaping certainly had an effect on the people. But notice in Peter's sermon that he does two big things. You can see these. He clearly presents Jesus as the Messiah who's worthy of praise. This man was healed as a result of the power of Jesus, the name of Jesus. He's the glorified servant of God. God has lifted him up, the God of our fathers. Number two, he clearly indicts Israel for rejecting and murdering him. It's very similar to what he does in his first sermon. Now, the events of Pentecost, I think, had kind of broken the crust of their hard hearts, many of them there in Jerusalem. And through the signs and wonders that they had just seen, the the soil was continuing to be worked up in their hearts. And now Peter, sensitive to the Holy Spirit, takes this opportunity to explain the sign and then to sow the seeds of the gospel in that soil. I think that's what made the difference between John 20 and Acts 3. I think it ought to be the same for us today. As often as the Spirit gives us opportunities to share and leads us to speak, we ought to tell people plainly the truth about who Jesus is. But speaking to a people about Jesus at some point includes speaking to people about their sin. Because sin is what The problem is sin is what separates people from God. Just like at Pentecost, sermons Peter here does that. There it said that it cut them to the heart and that some believed. Here it's just like then. He tells tells them plainly how they ought to respond. Look at verse 19 and 20. There's no no question. What do we do? They asked that in chapter 2. Here, Peter, without them asking, just gives them that information. He says, here's what you do. Repent, therefore, and turn back. That your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed to you, Jesus. And notice the word, therefore, in verse 19. This is a, a word, sort of, of conclusion to some degree uh it's it's not a new thought it's building on something that had been said previously it's it, so peter's making his point now based on everything that's happened and had been said previously and he's he's essentially saying here's the point of the sign of healing here's the reason that i pointed out your guilt in murdering the messiah here's the solution then also for your ignorance and foolishness and it's this ret- repent turn back. The audience who was listening that day, they needed to change their mind about Jesus, didn't they? He was the author of life, and yet they killed him. He was the long-awaited Messiah, and yet they rejected him. They needed to repent. They needed to change their minds and agree with God about their sin. They needed to turn their back from the sin of thinking that the law could save them. They needed to come to terms with the fact that only Jesus Christ could save them from sin and get them into a relationship with God. Repentance we've defined before as a change of mind that results in a change of action. There's an old children's hymn that I ran across this week that explains repentance pretty well. I don't know the tune to it, but it says this, Repentance is to leave the sins we loved before and show that we in earnest grieve by doing so no more. It's good. Think about G- think about Peter's appeal to the people. They had literally, some of these, listening that day, had literally had a part in nailing Jesus to the cross. His message to them is a tough one. He's pointing fingers. Now, we get real uncomfortable when people start doing that, right? And we're always the first to say, well, if you point the finger, you got, you know, three more pointing back at you or whatever. But Peter's doing that. He's pointing the finger at all of them. He's saying, you guys did this. The author of life, you killed It's tough. It's a tough message. The gospel is a tough message to hear if you don't know Jesus, right? Because it reveals the hidden parts that we want to keep secret. It brings to light the things that we want to hide in the darkness. It stirs up feelings that we really would rather not feel. But the gospel message isn't just a hard one. It's a beautiful one. It's beautiful because it reveals... And no matter how terrible your sins have been, if you repent, you will experience forgiveness. Look what he says. That your sins may be blotted out. Now this term blotted out is used in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And it's usually almost always got the same meaning. It means wiped away. Canceled out. Blotted out. Forgiven. It's like... It's like there's a whiteboard here and we've written down your sins on it throughout your life and then the moment that you're justified by faith in Christ, it's wiped away and there's no record of it anymore. That's what that word means. Now what effect would that have on a person? A person who genuinely recognizes their inability to measure up to God's standards. Now all of a sudden, if they repent and they turn to Jesus, Those, the record of their debt is wiped away, what kind of effect would that have on someone? Look at verse 20. I think here's the effect (laughs) that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. That word refreshing literally means recovery of breath when one is revived by fresh air. Milo needed this earlier, didn't he? He needed this refreshing and a big breath of air. John says in his gospel, in John chapter 3, that the wrath of God remains on those who do not obey the Son. Consider that. The wrath of God remains on those who do not obey the Son. He continues... He says in verse 36, but whoever believes in the son has eternal life. And so that's, that's a very small snippet of the truth of the gospel. That's the hard news, right? The wrath of God remains on those who do not obey, who do not believe. That's the hard part, but the beautiful part is quick to follow. Whoever believes has eternal life. The righteous wrath of God is a crushing weight that we bear, that we build on ourselves day in and day out with every poor decision by our sin. But what relief comes when we believe in the Son? It's like removing a 20-pound weight off your chest and taking that first deep breath There's life that comes in that. It makes you think clearer. It helps you to not be as stressed. It it does so many good things physiologically for us. But think about it spiritually. The wrath of God removed from you by faith in Christ, by being forgiven your sins, blotted out, wiped away, you'd feel like a brand new person, wouldn't you? Like a man who's never walked before, running and jumping. Like someone who's had every bit of their debt paid off. You've been there. You've been there where a bill is due and you don't have the money. Imagine someone comes in and says, not only am I going to pay your bill this month, I've wiped that debt out completely. And we can identify with that, right? God in Christ has done that spiritually for those who believe. Those who repent and turn to Him. This kind of thing almost can't be described. The joy that we would feel, our response to having that weight removed, that debt paid off. But the Bible has a word for it. Salvation. Justification. Regeneration. Being born again does this. Peter wasn't beating around the bush in his message here. He was pointing fingers. He was laying blame. He was telling them the truth about their sin. He preached Christ. Christ crucified. Christ risen. Christ glorified by his father. He got personal with them. right? He's pointing the finger saying, you handed him over. You denied him. You preferred a murderer. You killed him. Peter does a really good job here of making them feel their sins. The weight of it. But the beautiful part of this is the fact that he tells them to return, repent and turn around, turn back. He said, now, why is that beautiful? It tells us that there's hope. There's hope. People that murdered the king of the universe, the author of life, there's hope for even them. I've said today that your sin separates you from God, the holy God. And if that's all I said today, that's 100% true, isn't it? Our sin separates us from God. We need to know that. I don't believe that a person can be saved unless we understand that. Our sin has an effect. And that's oftentimes the part that we need to hear first. But if that's all you hear, if that's all that I said this morning, you'd probably leave pretty hopeless, wouldn't you? Now, we need to sit under that, maybe for a moment. We need to understand the effect of our sin. But that's not the whole gospel. That's not all there is. The gospel is good news. And so there's hope in the gospel because in Christ, your sins are wiped away. That's hope. Turn back that Peter encourages them to do. Really, it's a command for them to do. It refers to turning from and a turning to. So turn from sin, turn to holiness, turn from carelessness to thinking deeply, turn from the world, turn to heaven, turn from self and to Jesus. I think if, if we went around and I asked you, would you like. To experience times of refreshing in your life, I think we'd all say yes, right? I don't think there's anybody that's like, no, I'm, I'm all refreshed out. Thank you. We're all going to say, yes, I need some refreshing in my life. Maybe some of us would say, man, I, I just feel like I need to breathe deeply. I've been so concerned and anxious and, and caught up in things of life that I just, I can't I just don't feel at peace. I need to breathe deeply. Well, how does this happen? Where do times of refreshing come from? Look at verse 20. Peter's clear here. Times of refreshing come from the presence of the Lord. It's no coincidence that the ascended Jesus sits in the presence of the Lord at the right hand. In him we breathe deep refreshment. Verse 21 reminds us that there's a time coming when Jesus will come again and restore things according to the plan of the Father. He's going to restore all things. It's it's coming, brothers and sisters. And there's hope and joy in that event that we look forward to. And many of us seeing the state of our world around us say, man, Lord, come quickly. And in that, there will be a cause of refreshing and joy, right? When the groaning that our earth and many of our souls are experiencing now will groan no more. When it's refreshed perfectly according to the will of the Father. And you can know that personally today in Christ because of Jesus. Now we can't miss verse 23 at the end here. This is a warning says, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet, remember talking about Jesus, shall be destroyed from the people. That's why the wrath of God remains on those who do not believe in the Son because they haven't listened to Jesus. They aren't listening to Him. So the wrath remains on them. They will be devoted to destruction. Don't ignore the message here. Don't ignore this about Jesus because the effect, Peter says, is catastrophic. It's not just like, well, now you're behind on your payment and you've got a late fee and, you know, maybe you're going to get your car repoed. It's far more serious. It's far more eternal in effect. It's catastrophic. If you ignore the truth about Jesus, you have no hope. Don't ignore it, but repent and believe because that has the opposite effect, right? If hopelessness comes from not repenting and not turning, then hope can be found in Jesus by believing and turning from sin, repenting from it. And this is, I think, one of Peter's final points in this sermon. He says, all hope is not lost. You murdered the author of life, but there's still a way for you to be reconciled back to God. There's still a way. None of us picked up a hammer and nailed Jesus to the cross. But in our sin, we do the spiritual aspect of that. And yet Peter says, hope is not lost for you. Your sins may be blotted out. Times of refreshing can be experienced in your life. Last verses of this chapter tell us that blessings await those who are turned from their wickedness through belief in Christ blessings to generations if the weight of your sin is crushing you repent and turn from your sin to Jesus your ability to repent is God's gracious gift to you if you need to breathe deeply times of refreshing turn to Christ be refreshed in his presence that's where we find fullness of joy You can see the title of the sermon is, All Signs Point to Jesus. If God were to do incredible things in and through his people, it's only because we're glory reflectors, not glory seekers. The things that we experience in life, whether it's difficult things or joyful things, are all meant to turn us back to focus on the risen Christ. I was reading this week and uh, came through the story of Lazarus. And you guys know that story. Uh, Jesus is told before he dies that he's sick and going to die. Jesus doesn't save him. Turn, turn to John as we close this morning. Turn back to John. Because <laughs> I, I just hadn't caught this before until we started going through Acts. John chapter 21. Well, I should have written it down. It's not John John chapter 21. John I got the one part in there. Thank you. John 11. John chapter 11. This is the story of that account. Just start at verse 1 with me. We're just going to read through verse 4. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, Jesus, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, and this is the part that I had, had noticed, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. That's the point. Jesus, Lazarus, was raised from the dead to show who Jesus was. The lame man in Acts chapter 3 was raised from the ground simply to show who Jesus was and to turn our hearts to glorify him. Any incredible work of God in our world today is for the same reason, to point us back to Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this, your word. Thank you for the gospel message that is, that is so hard in one sense and it's so freeing in another sense because it reveals to us truly what our deepest problem is that we can't fix on our own. It, but it also reminds us that hope is not lost. It reminds us that there are times of refreshing to be found in this life through the person of Jesus. Jesus for eternity and so Lord there are some that are listening this morning that are in danger they're in danger as verse 23 says that they will be destroyed because they have not listened to Jesus and so I pray Lord that this would be a, a cause of great concern for those in that state That it would not cause them to despair though, Lord. That it would cause them to run to Christ. To throw themselves on His mercy. On His grace. And that all of life, every mundane event and every incredible event would serve to point us back to Him. And the goodness that we receive in Him. Transform hearts today. Through your Spirit by your word, for your glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen.